Well, as we think about our nice coronavirus Sunday, uh, I don't know how many more Sundays will be like this, but as long as they're here, uh, we'll do our best to try and carry on. And as we have the serious moment of the coronavirus, I figured why not preach on a serious subject? So the subject I wanted to preach on today, the question I wanted to ask, and it's one that we've asked before, is what is salvation? What is salvation? What, is, what does salvation look like to you? If someone were to ask you, are you saved? What would you say? For an evangelical Christian, it's relatively straightforward. Someone can say, I am saved because I affirm Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and because of the blood that he shed on the cross, my sins are forgiven and the gates to eternal life are opened, or some version thereof. If you're a Roman Catholic, salvation looks like being a part of the church and receiving the sacraments of the church. It's through the sacraments of the church and the ministry of the church that you're saved if you're a Roman Catholic. What about if you're a liberal Protestant? Good progressive. How are you saved? Now, one thing is this text from John that we looked at last week. Remember, last week we looked at the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. And in that interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus says that we must be born again of the Spirit from above. If we are born again in the Spirit, we are able to see the rule of God, the reign of God. That becomes a real possibility. It is the spiritual presence that saves us. And indeed, this is something that uh, progressive theologians have talked a lot about. If you've ever read any Marcus Borg uh, or others like that, John Dominic Crossan and others, what does it mean to be saved? Well, maybe not Crossan because he's a Catholic, but uh, um, others, at least in that general liberal ilk, what does it mean to be saved? It is to feel, to be aware of that spiritual presence. And that spiritual presence gives you grace to then live into the model of Jesus. That's what salvation looks like. And something similar is what, again, one of my favorite theologians, Paul Tillich, talks about. Is that once you feel that spiritual presence within you, you realize that you are accepted. That you are loved as you are. That spiritual presence gives you the grace to be a better person. And this is all well and good. And I... I, definitely affirm these notions of salvation uh, that we're talking about. Certainly this notion of salvation about a spiritual presence. But I have to ask the question, isn't there something more? Because if there's one thing about that definition of salvation is that it's focused on the individual. It's focused on just one person. And this is where the text that we have from John 4 is something that can help add to our conception of what salvation means. In John 4, we see a sense of salvation as being not just individual, but also communal. Liberation theologians, liberation theologians have often said that salvation is not just individual, but it must be communal, and it must be material. Material goods, material life actually matters for salvation, as do people in a community. And liberation theologians, particularly those who are in a process theology mindset, talk about a web of all life, and particularly of humanity. What binds us together is this web where we are all created beings. We are created in the image of God. And what does salvation look like? 
Salvation looks like the reign of God, the kingdom of God on earth. It is where everyone is at peace, where you see people for who they are, where all are provided for, where there is this state of shalom, peace that reigns. These things that liberation theologians talk about are very much communal and very much material. And think of how great that world would be. Imagine if everyone had what they needed, food to eat, a roof over their heads. Imagine if everyone felt connected to everyone else around them, where enmity and strife were no more. This is, this, this is the dream that Jesus puts forth, and this is something that liberation theologians call us to live into. And so the question becomes, what gets in the way of it? How do we not have this salvation? What, what, what causes problems? And according to these theologians, it's when this web of human connections gets fractured. And most particularly, the source of this sin is when we're able to see someone else as the other. As soon as we're able to dehumanize someone else, as soon as we're able to see someone else in a category of not like us, then that is where sin can enter in the equation and this web gets broken. The examples are endless that we can come up with. They're obvious ones, like racism. All of a sudden you see someone as a different race and therefore that gives you license to treat that person differently. Nationality. We see this coming up a lot. Oh, that person's a different country, a different nation, and therefore we can turn them into the enemy. We can even go so far as to kill them if, my, if, if, if need be. Think about how things were after September 11th. About how people of the entire, people of Muslim faith were all seen as being other by many Americans and the damage that that caused. But again, beyond these examples, uh, Putting people in categories of the other also causes uh, damage in ways we don't even think about. So, for instance, uh, the CEO who fires 10,000 people in a large corporation because, well, he doesn't know them, doesn't see them, they're just numbers on a page. Or the slumlord who uh, doesn't see his or her tenants as being fully human and therefore can cheat them of basic services, or try and cheat them of their rent payments, or cheat them of their down payments. Uh, you look at people who are involved in sexual exploitation, one thing after another after another comes down to this lack of being able to see the connections of the world and seeing someone else as truly human. And then there's the famous example of the banana that the Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner gives. Karl Rahner talks about how when you go to the store and buy a banana, you may not think that you're causing problems, but you might be. Because you might be supporting a company that is oppressing its workers in, say, Central America in order to pick that banana. That there is that separation in the web, that all of a sudden there's so much distance between you and other people that evil can happen because you're not aware of those connections that bind us together. So if we want to get to where we want to get to, if we want to get to salvation, if we want to get to this liberation theology dream, what are we supposed to do? What are some steps that we can take? How can we be part of the solution rather than the problem? And the first thing that we can do, I think, is uh, a little bit of radical self-knowledge. This is never something that uh, makes us very comfortable. It's always easy to look at those other people, <laughs> the evil CEO, the person who's selling mortgages to people who are who we shouldn't be to take advantage of them, the slumlord. It's very easy to look at those people and go, oh, look at those people are bad, but it's a little bit more tricky when we start turning the camera on ourselves. 
And also what, what, what shocks me is how early on we are taught in our lives how to treat other people as the other. I was thinking this past week about growing up in the 1980s uh, and some of, the, some of the ways in which I was taught to construct the other as someone in my generation. One, one thing, I remember when I was a kid hearing about the dangers of an impending Hispanic invasion of the country. That demographically, over the next 40 years, the country will become a Spanish-speaking country, our culture will be ruined, our country will be ruined because of this great invasion from the South. And what's interesting is that 30 plus years later, we're still hearing similar stuff. Um, and also, of course, this is not really based on any real conception of America, of the immigrant experience. Um, it is based solidly on racism. And yet it's amazing how those things taught to me as a child shaped my little childlike view of the world. Then they become something to overcome rather than, uh, rather than seeing the world again as full of these connections, it's seeing the world as the other. Think about another classic example that comes up is when I was growing up, one of the big things was the crack cocaine epidemic. And as, as has been pointed out many, many times, uh, during the 1980s, there was a general cocaine epidemic, and then you have powder cocaine that most people who are white and more privileged use that didn't get in the news, and then all the stuff in the news that we were taught as kids that people who were bad were the people using crack cocaine, usually in neighborhoods that were predominantly people of color, and particularly people who were African American. And therefore, the construction of race, of what it meant to be uh, black in America, was taught to me as a kid through the lens of that epidemic and the increased policing that grew out of it. Or I think about the AIDS epidemic at the time. Growing up as a little gay boy in Massachusetts, my first experience of people who were gay were people who had AIDS, or at least hearing about it in the news. Or again, it doesn't have to be uh, racial uh, or ethnic or about sexual orientation. It can also be about gender norms. I remember my mother, <laughs> My mother, she said she might be watching this, so she, she'll, she'll get mad at me for this, but yeah. that's all right. Um, my mother <clears throat> used to say incessantly to my sister, when she didn't live into gender norms of, her, of, of the time, that she wasn't being very ladylike. This came up all the time. Here my sister was acting the way that she would normally act, and my mother was putting, putting boundaries around her. That's not the way a woman is supposed to act. And again, you see gender norms being created and then how that shapes our sense of gender and identity. And as we grow older, and again, in our current day time, we do this creating of othering all the time. Which ones do you see in society most clearly? One's an urban-rural divide. That's a big one, especially ever since the 2016 election, where, oh, people in rural areas are fill in the blank. And if you're in a rural area, people in urban areas are Fill in the blank. They become an other, an entity, easily judged. How often do we fall into that? Obviously, in politics, that's the easy one. How you look at people in a different political party or different political alignment and immediately jump into various forms of discrimination. These things are in our society every day. And yet, the first step that we need in order to get to a different place is to recognize the fact that we us good Christians going to church via webcam on Sunday, us good Christians do this too. And that sort of rigorous self-examination would be the first step to trying to get to a different place. 
A second step we see here uh, in this passage with Jesus in John 4. And this is one of the remarkable things about this passage. I love this passage for many reasons. The passage uh, talks about, again, this great image of the living water of eternal life, which is great. Uh, commentators have mentioned the realism of the scene, the dialogue, the setting. But the one thing that jumps out to me most of all is, uh, is the sense that Jesus is intentionally interacting with a Samaritan woman. According to commentators, going from Jerusalem to Galilee, where Jesus and his disciples were on that path from Jerusalem to Galilee, going on that route from Jerusalem to Galilee, you don't have to go through Samaria. But Jesus and his disciples did. And then there is Jesus by the side of the well, reaching out and talking to this woman in such a way that was so shocking that even this woman says, why on earth are you talking to me? <laughs> you're a Jew and you're a man. You're not supposed to be talking to me. You, you didn't get the memo? This is not what you're supposed to do. We're different. Keep his face. And Jesus, no. Jesus insists on not only talking with her, but actually trying to form a relationship with her that goes deeper than just the superficial. He is sitting there asking about and knowing about her personal life. About some of the things that she might have struggled with. He's sitting there trying to see her as another human being across these boundaries that he is told as a good Jew he's not supposed to do. And as a good man in this heavily patriarchal world. There is a model for us. And I think all of us would say that as we've grown older, uh, we've grown by interacting with and getting to know people on a deep level who are different than us. And that is a, as an experience that I know, especially people at First Congregational, is something that we have experienced. I know it was a great benefit for me uh, when I made the decision to leave New England and go to Iowa to serve a church. One of the reasons why I left New England, I was working in New England at a very uh, wealthy and privileged boarding school called Groton School at the time. And honestly, I, my life at Groton was wonderful. But one of the reasons why I left Groton is because I was like, I am living in a bubble that is not particularly healthy for me, and there's a lot of work out there I need to do, and if I need to grow as an individual, I can't do it living in this bubble at Groton. I need to go somewhere else. And I intentionally wanted to get outside New England. I mean, for better or for worse, I'm a New Englander. I will always, on some level, be a New Englander. Um, but there's such growth stepping outside that. And to go to a place like Iowa, which people in New England just derisively refer to as flyover country, uh, where people have never actually been to, let alone get a chance to know the folks there, was an eye-opening experience for me. To see people who grew up on farms, to be in a place where the rural experience is the norm, where you can talk to basically anyone on the street in Ames, Iowa, and they'll tell you the price of corn per bushel. Um, just like here in Houston, they'll tell you the price of oil <laughs> per barrel. That was an eye-opening experience. Helped me grow as a person. And one of the great benefits of being in my job uh, one of the things that is fantastic about my job is that it forces me to interact with people of all different types. It's one of the few professions in the country uh, that requires that, to get to know folks from different walks of life. And I treasure that. And yet I still ask myself, how can I do a better job of that? And it's a question that all of us need to ask. If we, if we want to be part of the solution, how do we do a better job of that? I still tend to go to the same restaurants. Wouldn't it be nice if I actually tried to explore some other types of restaurants, and then talk to people that are there. Get outside my social bubble a little bit. Maybe volunteer for an organization that might intentionally put me in contact with people who are different than myself and my experience. Maybe for me, knowing what of my growing edges might be to go spend more time with people who are more conservative than I am. 
that would be beneficial. Um, a way to stretch, a way to learn, a way to listen. But as we try and think about how we can reach this point of salvation that we're talking about, uh, there is, there's, there's a third step we can take. Um, and this is definitely the hardest. <laughs> so the first step is obviously being aware of some of our biases and how we create the other. That's obviously a big thing. Uh, second thing is actually making the intentional move to get to know people who are different than us. That's a big thing. Third thing, uh, the third thing I, I was thinking about this week as I was reading through a book by Ibram Kendi entitled How to Be an Anti-Racist. Kendi writes um, about how racism in his mind, by his definition, racism grows out of social inequity. And that if you want to tackle racism, you can't tackle racism without first tackling social inequity. They are one and the same. So Kennedy would say that it's not just a question of, hey, I want to get to know people who are different than me, and then therefore, like, I don't see color or I don't see race. He's like, that's nonsense. He says, because racial assumptions in our country grow out of policy decisions, that the first step is policy decisions, and the second step is racial constructions. So for instance, uh, in the United States, the most famous example is slavery and enslaving Africans came first. Uh, and out of that grows this incredible history of racism. Jim Crow and other sort of policy things create social inequity, which leads to and fosters racism. Now, Kennedy would be very clear in making a distinguish between, distinction between discrimination and racism. According to Kennedy, anyone can discriminate on any different level. Racism, however, involves a difference in power, a difference in social equity. So, and this is where Kennedy, again, he's a bold guy. He's saying, listen, there is no neutral ground in this. Either you are a racist insofar as you are someone who supports a status quo of social inequity, or you are an anti-racist who actively works to bring about social equity. There is, no other, there is no third bucket. We don't have the luxury of saying, oh, well, I'm not a racist. Yes, I'm not lobbying for positive things, but I'm not a racist. You don't have the luxury of saying that, according to Kendi. You either are working for a better world, a more equal world, or you're not. And if you're not, you're in the racist category. If you are, you're in the anti-racist category. Kendi was also honest, saying, hey, for each of us, we're never fully and wholly one way or the other because we're never always working to dismantle systems of, of power and inequity. Um, there are times when we are, even the great social justice warriors among us, those who are okay with the status quo. And what's fascinating looking at this passage in John 4 is that Jesus talks more about, more. he, he does more than just interacting with a Samaritan woman, if you read through the text closely. One of the fascinating things that he does when he's talking to the woman is the woman asks, well, okay, basically, how is this going to be? She's basically asking, well, do I have to go be a Jew in order to take advantage of the salvation Jesus that you're talking about? And Jesus says no explicitly. He says that in the future, you won't be worshiping either in Jerusalem or on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, which is where the Samaritans would worship. It's neither of those things. There is a new reality that will be created in the eschaton, in the end days. That the institutions of religion, 
in Jerusalem and in Samaria. These institutions of religion are part of the things that create the racism that was present at the time of Jesus. When you're growing up in a system, uh, and you're growing up in a, in, in a religious society that intentionally creates the other of the Samaritans, that is part of the problem. And same thing for the Samaritan side. When they're growing up with their institutions of religion that are creating the Jews as the other, that's part of the problem. What Jesus is saying is that in the eschaton, those institutions won't be there. In the eschaton, there'll be a new reality in which all are able to access God directly through the Spirit and in truth. So, salvation. Communal salvation. The kingdom of God. That great vision that Jesus puts out for us. That's part of what it is for us to be saved. Not just to find the spiritual presence of God, but to try and live into and work for this kingdom of God. And it really does, it really does require a brutal honesty about how we create the other of someone else. It requires us intentionally trying to meet the other where they are and get to know people on a deeper level. But it also requires that active work to dismantle structures that create social inequity in our society. Now, in the present time that we're in, uh, we will, in the weeks and months in the future, have a chance to practice some of this stuff in our lives here in Houston or wherever we are. Because as this coronavirus continues to expand, if it's true of any kind of viruses or pandemics in the past, one of the things that comes up is that it's easy to start putting people in buckets of the other. This person is infected, this person's bad, oh, I'm going to keep my distance from this person, I'm going to sort of, and again, you see extreme examples of that in various epidemics of the past, the AIDS, Crisis is a perfect example where that happened all the time. And the key for us is how can we not create an other of someone because of this virus, but actually listen to the scientists and make sure we're taking proper precautions and doing the right things. But also being able to see no matter who might come down with the coronavirus or what might happen, see other people as the other. We are one community together. And also as part, of, part and parcel of this is one of the big impacts of the coronavirus in the United States will be an economic impact. A lot of people are already experiencing that for those people seeing their retirement savings getting destroyed. But also, when you look at any number of hourly wage employees who are not going to be working, people who work in restaurants or bars or other places, people who will not be making tips that they rely upon in order to pay their rent, uh, there'll be major economic dislocation. And one of the questions for us as a society is, are we able to model, again, this kingdom of God as we're facing this? Are we able to work to dismantle social inequity, to provide the support that's needed for people, to care for those, and to care for those in society, and to see all of us in society as intertwined into one web, one beautifully woven web, woven by God. That is our challenge for the weeks and months ahead, at least one of them. The reality is that the coronavirus, the coronavirus sees us all in the same way. The coronavirus doesn't discriminate. The question for all of us who are followers of Jesus, who are trying to figure out how to be a better person, is can we do the same thing? Can we see everyone else the way God sees us and therefore work to build, about, to build up this kingdom of God?